Across Latin America, the political left is making a comeback. Izquierdista presidential candidates won recent elections in Peru and Honduras. Activists are mounting protests against the conservative presidents of Brazil and Colombia. But the left's biggest win so far was in Chile, where Gabriel Boric was elected president last month. If you're getting a sense of deja vu, you're not alone. The early 2000s is calling, and it wants its Green Day CD back. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Thursday, January 6, 2022. 20 years ago, Latin America went through a similar jolt to the left. Boisterous showmen came to power like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva in Brazil, and Evo Morales in Bolivia. Is today's left turn another so-called pink tide like they called it back then? Or is it something more? Today, we speak about this resurgence with LA Times Mexico Bureau Chief Patrick McDonnell and what it could mean for a region coming to terms with soaring inequality, a legacy of colonialism, and a bloody authoritarian history. And later in the episode, we speak to a Chilean scholar about political developments in the country with big ramifications for its neighbors, the election of Gabriel Boric as president, and the writing of a new constitution. Within minutes of polls closing, the fans started gathering. I know that in the coming years, Chile's future is at stake. So I guarantee you that I'll be a president that looks after democracy and not risk it. The victory of Gabriel Boric in Chile's presidential election resonated across Latin America, and not just because he's a 35-year-old tattooed former student activist. His country is still dealing with the legacy of Augusto Pinochet, who became Chile's dictator in 1973 after overthrowing democratically elected socialist Salvador Allende in a violent coup. Pinochet officially ruled for 17 years. He embraced free market policies while torturing and killing thousands of political opponents. His successors left behind Pinochet's bloodshed as they pushed Chile's governance to the political center, but the dictator's shadow continues to loom over the country. That's why the rise of Boric has excited the left across Latin America. They're thinking, if Chile can elect a leader like him, surely other countries can too. Patrick McDonald is our Mexico City bureau chief and has covered the ebbs and flows of Latin America since 2006. Patrick, welcome to The Times. My pleasure, un placer. The last time left-leaning governments came to power in Latin America was that so-called pink tide that I mentioned. What was the history there? So back in the early 2000s, we had kind of really a, a backlash also against inequality, but much of it was against Washington's policies in Latin America and was specifically directed against U.S. leaders and policies. I mean, when Hugo Chavez went to the United Nations, very shocking moment, a little bit after George Bush had been there as the Iraq war was raging, and he got up in the United Nations podium and he said, I smell sulfur here. The devil was here. It was a very incredible moment. Uh, it shocked me. But that was a little bit of the tenor of the earlier pink tide. I mean, that was applauded. It wasn't that long ago, but it feels like a different era with a different set of forces putting that whole situation into motion. Yeah, I remember in the last pink tide, a lot of the rhetoric by Latin American leaders was very much reminiscent of the Cold War. Leaders would decry the U.S., los Yankees, los gringos, as wanting to bring in neoliberal policies, free trade, deregulation, the privatization of the public sphere. And those same leaders said salvation came from within, from the left and revolution. So Chavez and Lula and Morales, what were some of the policies of their time that made them so popular with their constituents? In Venezuela, obviously, Hugo Chavez has many detractors, many of them sitting in the United States. But 
I think that by most objective analyses, during his time, poverty was brought way down in Venezuela, a country of great inequalities. And, you know, that was very successful. And uh, I think an important piece of context also about the earlier Pink Tide is the resource boom of that era. You know what I mean? You had a huge boom in petroleum prices, other mineral prices that kind of helped fuel social changes that these leftist leaders were able to implement in that era, including Evo Morales also. And that kind of came to an end, which is one of the reasons that kind of dissipated and you had kind of them being replaced by more conservative leadership in many cases. You mentioned that the pink tide started to slow down and part of that was the commodity boom that you mentioned it ended. What else stopped the leftist march? Corruption is a, a major thing. You had corruption scandals in, in Brazil. To the extent that those were real corruption scandals, and some people feel that those were fomented from the outside, Lula and his successor uh, had serious legal problems. There were also corruption issues in Peru and elsewhere. So corruption came to the forefront. It's not as if it was anything new. But with the lessening of the commodity boom, the reducing of income, you had corruption also as a major issue that kind of helped Corruption is and and remains a major issue in all of these countries. We'll have more after this break. Patrick, we were just talking about the last time that the left was in power in Latin America. What about today? What kicked off the march this time? I mean, it's almost hard to underestimate the impact economically, sociopolitically of the COVID pandemic in much of Latin America. South America was extremely hard hit. I mean, I visited Peru. You could not sit at a table without finding a waiter or somebody, you know, sitting next to you who had either had COVID or someone had passed away of COVID. And uh, it just really impacted the country. It sent, it sent people into the countryside from the cities. Same in Colombia. These countries were extremely hard hit. These economies shrank. And I think that was a detonating point. But one has to say also in Chile, the issue of inequality came to a forefront even before COVID. In 2019, you had mass street protests. You had young people out in the street demanding equality, which resulted in a vote for a new constitution. So you had, you know, a multiplicity of factors, which kind of differ in every country. In Peru, you have Pedro Castillo, kind of a left-wing ex-teacher, coming into office and very close race. And you see him coming to fore with kind of a conservative social message, but very liberal uh, message on the sharing of mining royalties and the idea of more of these massive international profits kind of coming down to the average Peruvian, which really resonated in Peru. Yeah, and it's not just Peru and Chile. You also have Xiomara Castro, Honduras's first female president, not related to Fidel, and a leftist who recently was elected at the end of last year, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico. He was a leftist kind of populist elected there in 2018. Even Alberto Fernandez in Argentina. But what's surprising to me is that this new crop of leaders, they have different priorities and interests from that old set of leaders, Chavez and Morales and even Fidel for that matter. Today's leaders, particularly Gabriel Boric in Chile, we're seeing kind of more of a millennial, much more responsive to issues like feminism, to street protests by youth, which have really convulsed a number of countries focusing on inequality, but also on green issues, on environmental issues, on a sharing of resource issues. In many ways, what we're seeing today is, yes, we've seen some leftist 
governments come to power, certainly in Bolivia, Chile, Peru, potentially next year in Colombia and Brazil. But, you know, it it's all comes in the middle and the it's still ongoing COVID pandemic crisis, which has battered, you know, these economies. These are anti-establishment votes as well as being pro-leftist votes. Yeah, on this podcast before, we talked about Naib Bukele from El Salvador, the millennial meme-loving president who's another populist, but coming at his governance from the right. But now Chile has their own millennial president, 35-year-old Gabriel Boric. Part of him is old-school left, like he throws around the word comrade and has aligned himself with the Communist Party. And after his victory, he took a moment in front of a bust of Salvador Allende to pay his respects. But then he surprised himself by criticizing some of his fellow leftist Latin American leaders like Nicolás Maduro in Venezuela and Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. In Chile, the center has been very strong, has been dominant. Really, we've had a center-left and center-right, terms we don't really use in the United States, but they're very significant in uh, Latin American politics. And, and they've kind of alternated power since Pinochet left power in 1990. And Boric is singular in the sense that he's he's not Michel Bachelet, who was one of the center-left presidents. He's to the left of that. He's the one who said, if Chile is the birthplace of neoliberalism, it will also be its grave. It's kind of a, a motto that's been repeated a lot, although I think He's kind of laid off it lately. He wants to repeal to, to moderates. I think at one point, Boric has said he was going to eliminate the police force. Now he's talking about reforms. He wanted to reduce the work week. Now he's saying it takes a long time to rebuild a country. So you see kind of a moderating influence. She's going to have to deal, by the way, with a divided legislature. So, I mean, anyone who's been to Chile knows there's very strong conservative forces there. So I think there's a pretty big expectation that he's going to govern more and more from the middle. Finally, Patrick, when we talk about Latin America, it's always like ebb and flows. I hate to use that cliche, but it's true. You go to the left and it swings to the right, then it swings to the left and it swings to the right. For this resurgence, do you think this new pink tide is going to be a repetition of that past or is it going to be something a little bit more permanent? I think some of the themes that have come up, certainly environmentalism, the sharing of uh, natural resource wealth, you know, this backlash against inequality, I think those will linger, whomever takes them up, you know, whether they'll be in the guise of the left or the right, I think those are becoming pretty much normal themes and policy goals in the region. I think those themes will remain, whether they manifest themselves in uh, more left-wing candidates or more center-left candidates or center-right candidates trying to kind of seize upon those themes. I think, you know, it's, it remains to be seen, but it's all extremely interesting and dynamic developments, really, in the southern part of the continent. And one thing to be said, however, is that all of these political transitions were, in fact, political and not violent. And given Latin America's history, that is significant. Patrick, thank you so much for this conversation. My pleasure. Mi placer, como siempre. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Coming up, rewriting the country's constitution. Gabriel Boric's win comes during a tumultuous time for Chile. In 2019, a proposed hike in subway fare sparked massive protests that largely paralyzed life in the capital city of Santiago. That led to a push to rewrite Chile's constitution, which was originally dictated in 1980 by Augusto Pinochet, Chile's former dictator. That process is playing out right now, and here to talk about these changes is Claudia Heiss. She's a head of political science of the Institute of Public Affairs at the Universidad de Chile. Claudia, welcome to The Times. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
What's the feeling like in Chile right now? I think there is some fear, particularly in the right, because the Boric government has promised very important social change. And there's concern about the economy and what this change will mean. But I think the overwhelming feeling is uh, hope, really, that most of the people really hope for uh, this change that has been promised, the people that supported the constitution-making process. And also, I think Boric has been very successful in the last part of his campaign to show moderation, to show ability to, to have dialogue with very political sectors to show that he's not really a radical leftist or that he's a threat to democracy or things like that, that were the biggest fears in the right. So I think uh, there's a lot of hope that we will overcome a very unjust uh, economic system that has really meant that Chile, although it grew very much the last years, has not really distributed this, this wealth and this growth uh, among its population. So this is something that's been building in Chile for years. We're going to talk about the writing of a new constitution in a little bit, but what were some of the other social dynamics that led to Boric's election? I think there's two things. Uh, one is inequality. I think inequality, Chile has always been a very unequal country. Uh, Latin America is the most unequal region in the world. It's in, in Chile is one of the most unequal countries within that uh, region. We have always been unequal, but we were not so rich. So I think the problem is that Chile became richer and richer, and that did not mean reducing the, the gap between the rich and the poor. After years of democracy, after the return to democracy in 1990, became politicized. So in the beginning, people thought it was natural. It was okay that the rich could pay for health and the poor did not have access to health. But with time and uh, with this so sustained economic growth, uh, inequality became politicized. And people started saying, you know what? It's not okay. It's not so good. Uh, we have very low uh, salaries and we have no safety network. And this is incompatible with, with increasing social rights. And so we need to change things. The other thing I think is that politics after the transition to democracy became uh, more and more distant from regular citizens, became more encapsulated and elites became more and more isolated from citizens. Political parties lost their connection to their social roots. And the politics in Chile became extremely elitist and with very little participation. People don't trust uh, institutional politics. And that meant an increase of social movements and politics uh, was transferred from the ballot to the street. That's where the election of Boric comes in and that push for a new constitution. Here in the U.S., we've had ours since like the 1780s and it doesn't really change, but gets amended every once in a while. Why are people pushing for a totally brand new constitution in Chile? In Chile, our constitution was written by a dictator who took over power through weapons, who killed his opponents, appointed a bunch of lawyers and said, you write me the constitution that I want so that uh, we can radically change the political system that had been evolving in a democratic setting for a very long time. Chile, together with Costa Rica and Uruguay, is among the most institutionalized Latin American countries. It has a very long democratic tradition. We had a 19th century constitution that lasted for almost 100 years. So we, we are not among those countries that change constitutions every two years, you know. And all of that was radically changed by a military dictatorship that had a very specific economic program based on the neoliberal ideas of the Chicago School of Economics of that time, of the 70s, 
with a very strong anti-communist uh, and anti-leftist uh, ideology based on the Cold War, very nationalistic, very based on the military values, conservative Catholic, and all of that was put into this constitution, which did not represent the majority by any chance, and then remained there with some changes after the transition to democracy, but in essence, it conditioned what the political forces could do democratically. It really limited democracy after the transition to democracy. And that's what we're changing now with a democratically elected constitutional assembly that is writing a constitution that should be submitted around September 2022 to a referendum. Yeah, the assembly, it's interesting. It's 155 members, half are women. You have representation from indigenous groups. And a lot of the people who are part of this assembly are left-leaning or independent. And then you have Boric coming in, setting to take power. So what sort of opportunity is this for izquierdistas to shape the future of Chile? And can they take advantage of this moment? It's more a chance to democratize than really to create a left-leaning political system because, first of all, it was Congress that really regulated the process after an agreement among political parties responding to the social outburst. So it's not citizens directly doing a revolution, taking over and writing a constitution. Citizens really did something like a revolution because they went out to the streets and said, you know, we're not taking this anymore. But when the political parties said, okay, we have heard and we will agree on a constitutional change and on a constitution making process. And that led to the election of a constitutional convention where you are right, the left obtained good results and also independence. It was a, it was a massive rejection of political parties, of the parties that have ruled the country these last 30 years. And that convention has two thirds of its members not belonging to any political party, left or right. So this is not a takeover of the leftist parties. It's, it's many of these people come from social movements, on, from feminist movements, from environmental organizations, and don't really trust political parties. If the assembly can't come to a consensus on a new constitution by July of this year, the process ends and then Chileans will revert to the old constitution. If that happens, what does that mean for Boric's plans for Chile? I think it's very unlikely that they will not produce some kind of uh, text for uh, to submit to a referendum no, for July 2022. I think some kind of document will be presented to the country. If they couldn't do that, of course, that would be a terrible political crisis. Also, I think if they submitted a text and this text was rejected by citizens, so if people thought that the, the constitution produced was a bad constitution and it was so bad that it's worse than the dictatorial constitution, we would go back to square one and be left with the 1980 constitution that really created this whole problem in the first place and brought people to the streets to protest and to demand for a new constitution. And I think most sectors, left and right, are really betting to have a successful process with a legitimized constitution that allows to start rebuilding a political system that has lost the trust of its citizens. What's happening in Chile right now with Boric and with a new constitution, how do you see that reflected across the rest of Latin America as other countries also seem to be moving towards the political left? I think this is a good chance for a kind of left that really respects democracy, pluralism, political parties, communications. We've had a left that has damaged, I think, the demands of more social equality, redistribution, and a more active state, a more progressive tax structure. All that has been damaged, I think, by a left that has not respected political opposition and that has not respected the political process in other countries. I think this left that is coming to power is different, is really 
deeply committed to pluralism and to democracy. And I think Boric has shown his will to build uh, broad coalitions, to talk to very moderate groups, uh, and also the left part of his own coalition, because he represents um, the moderate part of a leftist coalition. So he's trying really to build a very strong basis for this new process that Chile is starting through the new constitution and through change of model. But I think he knows and he acknowledges in his discourse that the, the change will not come from one day to the other, that people need to be patient, that there are economic restrictions. And he has talked a lot about economic uh, responsibility lately, fiscal responsibility. He knows that there's not unlimited money to do whatever you want. And we are coming out from a very strong crisis after the COVID. Finally, Claudia, this new rise of izquierdismo across South America, do you think it's a redemption for leftist ideals or more just a repudiation of the political establishment? I think part of it is a rejection of elitist politics and the political establishment. And part of it is also a rejection of, the, of neoliberalism, I think, of a model that has maintained Latin America in, in very unequal terms. And, and I think there's a trend that is not only Latin American, that is in the entire world to criticize what has been the paradigm of neoclassic economics in the last years of a very reduced role of the state. And I think in many countries, we are seeing that uh, the problems of uh, economic unregulated commerce, international uh, unregulated commerce bring problems to democratic decisions in countries. And I think there's a trend to really question these things that were sort of a like a truth, unquestioned truth after the Washington consensus. And I think many respected, well-known economists around the world are saying that capital needs to be regulated, commerce needs to be regulated, monopolies need to be regulated. Otherwise, you have a system that uh, has very, uh, not only uh, unequal and ethically questionable results, but also inefficient results. And I think that's what we're seeing in Chile with a lot of monopolies of uh, abuses from colluded markets uh, towards citizens and very unprotected consumers. Claudia, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, rising crime rates in California. How real is it? Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Melissa Kaplan, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Lauren Rapp. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put you podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news on this madre. Gracias.